Good morning. Good to see you all. Let's go ahead and begin class for prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will be with us, empower us, enlighten us, and enable us to take the truth about your kingdom of love to the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly Revival and Reformation. And the title is Reformation Healing Broken Relationships. If you look at the second paragraph, Sabbath's lesson, it says, In this week's lesson, we will focus on restored relationships. Great spiritual revivals in the past fostered healed relationships. Movements of the Holy Spirit involve bringing people closer to God and to one another. They include breaking down the barriers in our relationship with God and breaking down barriers in our relationships with one another. In short, the greatest demonstration of the power of the gospel is not necessarily what the church says, but how the church lives. I love that last sentence. That's fantastic. Absolutely right. In fact, the whole idea is correct, uh, breaking down the barriers between us and God. God. And so let's start out and ask, what are the barriers in our relationship with God? What are those barriers that need to be broken down? Fear. Fear. Selfishness. Lies. I like this. All those are good. Inappropriate images of God. Inappropriate images of God. False God constructs. Good. I wrote all lies, selfish nature, fear, guilt and shame. How about that? Guilt and shame in our hearts. Um, Fear of not being loved, not being good enough. That's part of the fear aspect, but the specific. Hard, how about a hardened heart, which loves self in the world? Heart that's hard. How about pride? How about anger at God for some perceived injustice? Mad at him. Well, let's just quickly, these are pretty straightforward, but let's just quickly identify the solution that break down these barriers. What is it that breaks down lies about him? Truth about him. That's pretty straightforward. How about what is it that, that, that brings about a change in our selfish nature? How does that barrier get removed? Love. Uh, love, that's right. Experiencing, being brought by truth to a trust relation with God. We open the heart and the spirit transforms us. We experience his love in our heart. Love does away with selfishness. Um, the, how about the fear we have of him? What does away with the fear? The truth. Truth on multiple levels, not just cognitive truth, experiential truth. We come to a knowledge of him, life eternal, they might know him, the only true God in Jesus Christ. Now, Coming to a, a cognitive but experiential knowledge of God, we, we, we know who he is. We're not afraid of him anymore. And where do we see the clearest revelation of God? Jesus. And it's, it's so clear. If you ever get afraid of God, stop and go, wait a minute. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one. And how many were afraid of Jesus? Oh, okay. Um, well, the Pharisees were afraid of Jesus. Well, they they, they they were convicted of their own of their own condition. Yeah, I was going to suggest. I understand where you're going with that. I think they were afraid of his influence and the consequences of his teaching, undermining their authority and their power. But him personally, him personally, they wanted to kill him. They they, they were plotting constantly. Yeah. Exactly. But I, I, I agree with you. When he would let some of the, his divine nature flash out, they, they couldn't tolerate it and they would, they would get, run away. How about hardened hearts, which love self and the world? What is it that breaks a hardened heart? It's often, often a painful experience. Isn't it? Often some experience that is too much for us to handle. It breaks our heart. And we seek for another solution. How about pride? It's often a humbling experience where our arrogance and our pride 
didn't work out for the end and we were humiliated and humbled. And we realized, wait a minute, maybe I'm not all that I thought I was. And our anger at God for some perceived injustice, what breaks that barrier down? I think several of these things, it goes back to who God is and, and what he truly is, what he's like. Exactly right. Seeing God and understanding the event in a different perspective. Those, those things kind of break it down. But what about this as a barrier? We're talking about in the, in the quarterly saying breaking down the barriers in our relationship with God. And I, and, I, and I remember a couple of quotes that came to my mind. I wanted to share those with you and th- see what you think about this. And notice the language here. First is out of a book called The Cross of Christ. Second will be out of Seventh-day Adventist Believe. Uh, 27 Fundamentals, page 111. First is Cross of Christ, page 74. Paul always speaks about people being reconciled to God. He never refers to God being reconciled to us, which is exactly true. That's an absolute truth. The Bible, you will never find the Bible talking about God needing to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to Him. In other words, what that means is you never find the Bible teaching God needed something to be done to change His attitude, heart, fix Him in some way so He'd be compassionate to us. We were deviant, defective. We needed something to change us so we'd be back in harmony with Him. That's what the Bible teaches. Absolutely right. Notice the next words after they state this clear truth in spite of that fact. Now, what is that going to mean to you? Just before I even say anything else, what, what does that tell you is coming? Yeah. Irrespective of what the Bible says, we know better. <laughs> and that's what comes next. Listen, in spite of that fact, however, we should recognize that sin affected both sides. Humanity's rebellion and sense of guilt alienated it from God, while God was separated from humankind by his necessary hatred of and judgment on sin, his wrath. Christ's sacrificial death, propitiation, removed the barrier to reconciliation from God's side. Remember, we're talking about removing barriers here. This book suggests that there's a barrier in God's heart to our reconciliation. Well, here's 27 Fundamental Beliefs, page 111. Christ's self-sacrifice is pleasing to God because this sacrificial offering took away the barrier between God and sinful man, in that Christ fully bore God's wrath on man's sin. What is the barrier here? Our sin? God's wrath. Hmm. So is the obstacle that keeps us separate from God in God's heart, is that where the obstacle is? You know, that's what this is suggesting. He's mad. He's angry. He's wrathful. And something has to be done to remove that. That's a barrier to our reconciliation. Who would want us to believe that? Satan. Exactly. He wants us to have this fear of God. We can't, but, but what did John the Baptist say? That the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. This Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. This is the barrier. Our, our own sinfulness, our own deviance from God's design is what obstructs us from coming to him and our distrust of him. The barrier is in our hearts, not God's heart. In a way, the wrath of God, as we try to understand it, is that he you know, backs away and lets, lets us go, finally. In a way, isn't that what Christ experienced on the cross? Well, Christ did experience the, the wrath of God, but the wrath of God is not a barrier. Right. What is the wrath of God according to Scripture? Let's go. That's exactly right. Uh, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being uh, revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
And he goes on to tell you that comes because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Therefore, God does something. And in verse 24, 26, 28, Paul says, Therefore, God rained fire down from heaven and burned them. So what he says, Therefore, God let them go, gave them up. You see, when you understand God's law as the protocols upon which life is built to operate, like the laws of respiration, if you're deviant from those laws, you've tied a plastic bag over your head, the, nobody has to inflict punishment upon you. If they just let you go and don't intervene, don't pull the bag off, don't rip a hole in it, don't put a trach in, don't do something to give you oxygen. If we just let you go your own way, guess what happens? This is what's happening. Yes. What you're describing is God's actions as a result of his wrath. His wrath is against sin, not against sinners. Well said. Well said. God's anger and wrath is like doctors are angry and wrathful at disease, but not at patients. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So recently I've had some correspondence from listeners, actually several, who have felt I've been attacking the church. Recently? Recently. No. <laughs> so first off, I want to thank all of those who've emailed me, written me letters, and, and told me their concerns along this line. But sometimes, let me, let me just set the context here. When a doctor diagnoses a patient and informs the patient of the diagnosis, tell them what's wrong, sometimes patients feel uncomfortable, they feel embarrassed, they're afraid of rejection, they're fearful of ridicule, but the doctor does not diagnose the defects in the patient for the purpose of hurting, criticizing, mocking, or in any other way attacking the patient. The doctor has a heart of love for the patient and wants to heal the patient, but one cannot heal until one admits there's a problem. So it starts with the diagnosis. When I point out these things, I'm not attacking the church. I'm attacking distortions that have infected the church and undermine our mission I want to see the church healed. I want to see the church rise up and do what it's called to do. So jump to Friday's lesson and look at number three in Friday's lesson. It says, if we look at our church, that is the Seventh-day Adventist church as a whole, what is the greatest thing holding us back from the kind of revival and reformation that will be needed in order to reach the world? Is it our teachings and doctrines? Of course not. These are the very things God has given us to proclaim to the world. You see, how can we take a message to the world when we know we're right, but we're misrepresenting God as the source of death and inflicted punishment? This is the problem. As an organization, we're in denial. We've been infected. We have an imposed law construct. We believe that God, in order to be just, must use his power to torture and kill his children. We are not worshiping, as the first angel's message calls us to, worship him who made the heavens the earth. We're not worshiping the designer, the creator, the builder, whose universe operates upon the laws of love, the principles that, of giving and beneficence that life was created. We're not worshiping. We're worshiping the dictator, the imperial Roman dictator who imposes law and will kill you and is wrathful and hostile and angry and must be appeased by the blood of his son, propitiated. This is what we've been taking to the world. It's a lie. We can't do our mission. And we're not, even, we're not even willing to look at the things we teach and ask, hey, are these really right? No, we know our doctrines are right. So it just must be the way how we treat people. Well, guess what? Why do we treat people the way we treat them? 
By beholding, we become changed. We actually assimilate into our characters and methods and practices those principles of the God we worship. And when you worship an authoritarian dictator, guess what happens to you? You become the same way. You become the same way. And the, stu- and the, and the data is very clear. There is no difference in domestic violence rates in Christian homes than non-Christian homes. How can that be? Because we worship a dictator. Yes, your hand was up first. And the answer to that question is because good news always impacts people. It always changes things if it's truly good news. It's because we don't have any good news. Our news is essentially the same news as every other denomination, just packaged into a different doctrine, but it's not good news. When we truly come together and have good news, we will change things. Yeah, and the good news in the first angel's message is the eternal good news. Does that mean eternal only in eternity future? Or does that mean eternal good news as in eternity past? It's always been good news. And most people say, well, Christ died to pay your sins and assuage the Father's wrath so you can have salvation. That's good. You know what? That was not always eternally true. The eternal, think about it this way. Would, would it be good news that you could have eternal life with God if God was the kind of person and being Satan says he is? Would that be good news? No. Would you want to spend eternity with that kind of deity? No, the ultimate good news is God is like Jesus revealed. This is the ultimate good news. And his universe runs in harmony with his own nature. That's how he built it to run. It's incredible good news. He's not against us. He is always for us. If God is for us, who can be against us, the scripture says. This is the good news. I agree with you. He was for us before the cross in the same, to the same extent and degree that he is for us now. Absolutely. And so we're talking about these barriers between our relationship with God, here's a historic Adventist view. Now, I read you some modern Adventist quotes that just have been in the last you know, few decades. Here's an historic one. This came out of Signs of the Times, September 24, 1902. Somebody what you might know named Ellen White wrote this. It says, To break down the barrier that Satan had erected between God and man, Christ made a full and complete sacrifice, revealing unexampled self-denial. He revealed to the world the amazing spectacle of God living in human flesh and sacrificing himself to save fallen men. What wonderful love. Here we have the barrier between us and God was erected by Satan. Earlier I read God's wrath is a barrier that needs to be removed. Are they the same? Not at all. Same author. No, this was was, uh, written by Ellen White. The barrier was written by the same author. Oh, the barrier was, yes. Yes, exactly right. Mm Mm-hmm. So, in our modern view, what's being printed today, we have a God generating in his heart a barrier to our reconciliation. But the Bible and our founders put the barrier that Christ came to remove as being erected by Satan. Is it an attack on the church to point it out, or is it love for the church? Would it be for a child not, never to point out anything that they needed to be aware of. That wouldn't be love. When a doctor rightly diagnoses a patient with anthrax, is he attacking the patient or is he helping the patient? He's helping. What if the patient was in denial and refused to believe it and the doctor became passionate? It's doctor against the patient. I'm not attacking our church or any other church group. I'm attacking an infection of thought, a false construct, a distortion about God that has entered Christian thought and impairs our ability to take the final message to the world. Sunday's lesson, it says, uh, and notice, see if you can pick up how this infection has affected Sunday's lesson. Look at Sunday's lesson. uh, Paul and Barton, we're going to do uh, first and third paragraph. 
Paul and Barnabas worked together in witnessing for Jesus, but they had some strife between them. Paul could not trust one as fearful as John Mark. The potential danger of preaching the gospel had caused John Mark at one point to desert Paul and Barnabas and return home. Third paragraph. Although God used all these men, the issue between them needed resolution. The apostle who preached grace needed to extend grace to a young preacher who had disappointed him. The apostle of forgiveness needed to forgive. John Mark grew in the affirming mentorship of Barnabas, and eventually Paul's heart was apparently touched by the changes. And then the last paragraph, last sentence, says, Paul's ministry was enriched by the young preacher whom he had obviously forgiven. The barrier between them was broken and they were able to work together in the cause of the gospel. According to the lesson, where's, where's the barrier that needed to be broken here? Paul was unforgiving. Paul was unforgiving is what they're suggesting. Do you see this is a mirror of the theology? This is a mirror of the theology. God is unforgiving. God is wrathful. God must forgive in order for us to be reconciled. I would suggest this is all an error. I suggest that Paul didn't have an unforgiving attitude towards John Mark. But Paul didn't trust John Mark's ability to handle the responsibilities placed on him and therefore didn't want to rely on him, i.e. work with him. In other words, the barrier was not in Paul's unwillingness to forgive, but in John Mark's maturity and ability to handle the responsibility. And what changed was the same thing that changed for Peter. Think about Peter in the upper room. Could Christ trust him? Even though he declared, all others will run away, I won't. Could, could Christ trust him? Why not? It was only after he denied his Lord, went out and wept bitterly, had a change of heart, that he was now ready to handle the responsibilities. Likewise, John Mark needed some time to reflect on his fearfulness, his walking away from his mission, and determine in his own mind that he was committed and willing to sacrifice himself for the cause of Christ. Evidently, he came to that recommitment, as Peter did, when he went out and wept bitterly, and then he was valuable to the cause and Paul could work with him. Where is the problem in our relationship with God? His ability and willingness to forgive, or our ability to trust and obey? Do you see how, how this thread of thinking, this theology makes the problem of the offended person's willingness to forgive? In other words, when we do wrong, it's not the, the, the defects in our heart and character that are the barrier. It's when we do wrong, it upsets God. He becomes angry and wrathful, and that becomes a barrier. And if he would just be forgiving, if he would just be a little more gracious, if we, as long as we have Jesus pleading with him, then we can remove the barrier. But the, we don't really have to have a change, you see. See, John Mark didn't have to change. Paul had to change. It's a parallel. Where do they put the problem? It's a way to protect the evil in our hearts and allow us to continue to feel good about ourselves rather than humbling ourselves. When a breach of a relationship occurs, it's true that the offended party must have a forgiving heart. But forgiving the offender alone doesn't equal reconciliation. Why not? On the cross, Christ forgave those who put him there. Yes, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Were those people forgiven by Christ, reconciled and friends with him now? Why not? Christ wasn't unforgiving. If you see me, you've seen the Father. So you're looking there at the Father on the cross because he's revealing the Father's character. And the Father, and Jesus didn't have anyone plead with him to assuage his anger and wrath at those who crucified him. We've got the model right there. God is forgiving freely, but yet they still weren't reconciled. Why not? They weren't changed. 
they weren't changed. Where is the defect? Where is the problem? In a wrathful, angry Christ who won't forgive? Or a hardened human who won't repent? That's where the problem is. Monday's lesson. Any questions about forgiveness, relationships, barriers to forgiveness? Yes. Let's just read Romans 5.18. It's a beautiful verse. It says, So then, as though one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Yes, yes, yes. Everybody was justified, you know? Everybody was forgiven. Alrighty. Since you brought that up, let's jump. We'll have to come back. Yes, let's jump to, to Wednesday's lesson. We'll come back to Monday and Tuesday. Jump to Wednesday's lesson. We'll, we'll explore this idea. Third paragraph. First off, there's several really nice things said. A third paragraph is one of them. It is true that we cannot receive the blessing of forgiveness until we confess our sins. This does not mean that our confession creates forgiveness in God's heart. Forgiveness was in his heart all the time. Confession instead enables us to receive it. Confession is vitally important, not because it changes God's attitude towards us, but because it changes our attitude toward him. Uh, When we yield to the Holy Spirit's convicting power, we repent and confess our sins. We are changed. This is well said. This is very well said. I agree with that completely. Second, uh, Second paragraph. Christ took the initiative in reconciling us to himself. It is the goodness of God that leads, us to, leads you to repentance, Romans 2.4. In Christ, we were reconciled to God while we were yet sinners. Our repentance and confession do not create reconciliation. Christ's death on the cross did. Our part is to accept what he has done for us. And then... The scripture says in Romans 5, 9, and 10, it's going along with the verse that you read, I think it was 18 you read. Mm-hmm. This is verse 9 and 10. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? And you can read the one that you read. Read it again. Mm-hmm. So then as... Though one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So what does this mean? Which law do you look through? Do you look through the law of love, the design protocols that life was built upon? Do you look through the imposed law model? I can tell you how this is interpreted through the imposed model. Let's look at that one first. The imposed proponents will say this is what it means. That all humanity had their sins, past, present, and future, placed upon Christ at the cross. And at the cross, Christ suffered the legal penalty, paying the legal price at the cross, removing the wrath from God's side. Thus, humans are legally reconciled, though they are still God's enemy in heart. And when you actually accept Christ as your Savior, and I'm going to tell you, I spoke with the theologians here in this community that lead certain theological departments around here, And they told me to my face that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you are justified and God declares you righteous even though you're not. That's what I said. See, you guys are so, I said, so, so you're saying God lies. Oh no, no, they really got upset at that. 
No, God doesn't lie. Because he declares you righteous based on the merits and record of Jesus, which is now legally applied to your account. So when he looks at your account, he sees the perfect life of Jesus in your account, and so he can legally declare you righteous, even though in heart you're not. How do you like that view? No. Do you see a problem with it? This is this imposed model. It's just craziness. It'd be like going to the ER, being sick, terminal disease. Your older brother gets examined instead of you. They write down all the healthy findings in your medical record, and they say, hey, you know what? We put your brother's findings in your record, and therefore we declare you healthy. Does that work for anybody? No. Our view would say that the human species was reconciled to God or put back into its original intended condition in its created perfection and relationship with God in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus became sin, though he knew no sin. He took upon himself. He, he joined with our genetic inheritance. In other words, God could have created out of dust a new human being. Would that human being be part of Adam's family? No. No. But Christ, being born of Mary, became part of Adam's family, and one of Adam's descendants perfected humanity. And through the second birth, we participate in that. The first birth, we get the back nature, the new birth. So Jesus provided or achieved what Adam was intended to be. In Jesus Christ, humanity became what Adam was intended to be. And Jesus achieved remedy for our condition, and thus the human race, the human species, was reconciled to God at the cross. But, now Christ applies that remedy via the work of the Holy Spirit to all individuals, and if you accept and trust him, the Holy Spirit takes what Christ has achieved and makes it known to us. He writes his law on heart and mind. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, and all on, on, on the metaphors go. And thus we are individually reconciled as we trust him. So the race was reconciled in Christ. We can be individually reconciled by our own trust in him. And let me show you how Paul differentiates those two in Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 1. Notice the difference. We're going to compare 5, 1 verses 5, 9. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 1. Here's verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Do you notice in one text we're justified by faith? In another text we're justified by blood. And notice... After we're justified by blood, we still have to be saved. Notice the text. Read it. Since now being justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved? What's going on here? The justified are set right by faith versus the, the blood. It's a meta, meta, the blood, by the way, is a metaphorical way of saying Christ's death on the cross. Paul's describing the justified by his blood. He's focusing on the work that God needed to accomplish in order to heal, restore, fix humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ did this alone, without any help from any human being. He took upon himself the the terminal condition and cured it. Thus the human race was justified. We, the human species, we the species human of planet Earth, genetic descendants of Adam, have a champion who has made our species perfect and right in every way and restored the human species back to right relation with God. That's Romans 5.9. Justified by faith, Paul is talking about that each individual human, human choosing to trust God opens their heart, 
trust faith, has faith, and experience the application of Christ's achievements via the work of the Holy Spirit within him. Notice, there's no legal transaction going on in the courtrooms of heaven. But the designer, builder, creator is actually recreating humanity back to his original intent through the achievements of Jesus Christ. Questions? Did I lose anybody? Do you see the difference? No? Thoughts? Questions? Yes? I see the difference, but I'm curious what different translations might say from verse 9, because it talks about being saved from God's anger or wrath. So how do we take that? Because we're, we all, we're talking about, we fully believe that the problem is not God's anger. It's our condition. So... Where's Paul going with that? And, and do we just string it into wrath as in God's letting go? Or what do you think? Well, um, Paul wrote this in Romans 5, which is a continuation of a single document that he started in Romans 1. And in Romans 1, he already told you what God's wrath is. is we reject the truth of God, exchange it for a lie, therefore God lets us go. 24, 26, 28. In verse 4, verse, verse, chapter 4, verse 25, he, he describes Jesus being experiencing God's wrath and the same exact Greek that we read in chapter 1, therefore God let him go. And the point being is, if we accept what Christ has done and have faith, we are transformed and God won't let us go. But if we reject it and we insist on going our own way, God sets us free to reap what we've chosen. And what happens when we choose to separate from him? Why? Who's the source of life? And so if we choose to separate from our source of life, what's the inevitable outcome? Yes, it doesn't have to be inflicted. You see, when you have the natural law model that God built life to operate on certain parameters, and we're deviant from that, we're dying. Dying you will die, he said in Genesis to Adam. God is working to restore and heal. But when you have the imposed law model, then it's a system of rules and the authority has to inflict punishment. And this is what we get. It's, a, it's an infection that started with Constantine and the whole Christianity has been corrupted by it. And we, we, at the end of time, are called to stand up and give the true gospel message to set minds and hearts free. And so the human race, as it is in Adam, all were condemned in Adam. What does that mean? There you go. All human beings are born infected, deviant from God's line. It's a, it's con- but all are made right in Jesus Christ. The human race was put back right again. And now we can participate in that rightness. Thank you for the question. Faith in what? His own self. Our faith in his power to destroy sin in us for one example. Sin is destroyed in our hearts by our agreement with him. Is anyone there watching who can present some of this to Tim? That would be nice. And the reason he lets us go is that it is what we choose, not because he doesn't want to keep us. He could change all of us in an instant, but freedom would be compromised. They just wanted me to present it to you. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, in the last paragraph, notice what it says in the last paragraph. This is on Wednesday still. We'll go back to, to Monday in a minute. Forgiveness is releasing another from our condemnation because Christ has released us from his condemnation. It does not justify another's behavior toward us. We can be reconciled to someone 
who has wronged us because Christ reconciled us to himself when we wronged him. We can forgive because we are forgiven. We can love because we are loved. Forgiveness is a choice. We can choose to forgive in spite of the other person's actions or attitudes. This is the true spirit of Christ. That last portion is absolutely right. We can choose to forgive regardless of the other person's actions or attitudes, but I want to focus on that first sentence. What do you think about this idea? Forgiveness is releasing another from our condemnation because Christ has released us from his condemnation. Say that louder. It's not biblical. Well, give me some biblical evidence to support that assertion because I agree with you, but where's the evidence? John 3.17, beautiful. You want to read it to us? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Right after John 3.16, for God's will of the world, he gave his only begotten son. He did not send him into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And what, what about, can we see it in action? Is there an example where he lived that out? How about the woman caught in adultery? Thrown down at Jesus' feet, right? I mean, right out of the adultery bed. Sin is just, boom, right there. He's thrown at her feet. And what did Jesus say to her? Neither do I condemn you. But wait, we have that Jesus is letting go of his condemnation. He didn't have any condemnation to let go of. He never condemned. He never condemned. But he made it clear that our own words and our own choices will condemn us. Yes. Not God, but our choices. Yes, your words, your deeds will condemn you. Okay? So, and notice the two law models. Under the imposed law model, the ruling authority must have a judicial finding and find you guilty and condemn you to hell. Or eternal death. Or else it's not just. Under the natural law model, what condemns you? If a person is infected with cancer, and, they, and it's all over their body, what is condemning them to death? The disease. We are in a condemned state from Adam. But not in imposed legal condemnation, a conditional condemnation. Our hearts are defective. We are alienated. As it says in Romans, we are, our hearts are enmity, enemies of God, against him, selfish, deviant, out of harmony with the way life is built. We can't survive in this condition. Christ is not the accuser of the brethren. Christ is not the accuser of the brethren. That's right. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He does, Christ, Satan is the accuser of the condemner. Christ is the Savior, the Savior. How many songs do we have about Christ, our condemner? <laughs> yes, in the back. They ask again for me to present something to you. Here, what if it is God declaring us what he, by faith, sees we can be rather than what we are now? That is the question. Yeah, I, I think that, um, that the declaring aspect... <laughs> God does not declare things that are not true, in my view. So, what the natural heart, according to Romans 5, is enmity or against God. We don't trust him, we're opposed to him, we're oppositional, we're self-centered. In, in Romans chapter 4, it says that, that um, Abraham trusted God and was recognized, the, the Greek word can be recognized, accounted, or declared. The, the, the Greek word can go three ways, same word. Um, but he was recognized, accounted, or declared righteous. Think about it. He trusted God and was then recognized or counted righteous. Meaning, the heart in distrust, the heart that's oppositional, the heart that is at war with God, had a change so that it's no longer at war with God. It's a heart now that trusts God. What came first? 
the declaration and recognition of righteousness or a change in heart where the person had been won to trust and that, that, that is a heart motivational change, an orientation shift. And then the rest is just clean up. Once we genuinely trust him and open our hearts, all the old habit patterns and all that other stuff that Paul talks about in Romans 7 is just clean up. Okay, right here. Again, with the natural law model, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned was not God declared humanity sinful. It was that once Adam and Eve became fearful, once they changed, they could not produce another human being that didn't have those same characteristics. That's exactly right. It wasn't that God caused it. It was that Adam and Eve caused it. That's right. And everything they produced after that was of their own nature. And Christ came to reverse that. And when he did that in himself, in humanity and himself, then he gave us a chance to be born again into that nature. But it wasn't that God declared humanity sinful all after Adam and Eve. It was that they couldn't produce anything but themselves. So I agree with you completely. If we believe God, though, is the source of condemnation, what does that do to our ability to trust him? And so we see, but, but we have these texts about God sitting in judgment. How does that work? Well, we have an example in Hosea. Here's the judgment of God. Ephraim is tied to his idols. He is bent on leaving me. Let him go. There's a judgment. And what is it? God's folk. It's a judgment of the condition of the heart. God's judgment at the end is the same as a doctor's diagnosis. He diagnoses accurately every heart. We've either been one to trust, open the heart, been regenerated by the Spirit, love God and others more than self, or we've hardened the heart, closed it to the Spirit. And, and we might be religious, like the Pharisees were religious, but we are still his enemies. And he'll say, get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Let's jump back to Monday's lesson. It discusses the runaway slave Onesimus and his owner Philemon. And in this, uh, in this uh, passage, it describes just the history of what happened that uh, Paul instructed Onesimus to go back to, to uh, Philemon. And he sent a letter to Philemon basically introducing uh, Onesimus back to him as a uh, brother in Christ. And, um, and the purpose was to basically put Philemon in the position of loving Onesimus and not punishing Onesimus. And having Anismus have a secure and safe place to live rather than being a fugitive in Rome where a slave had no ability to feel safe anywhere, going back in a reconciled relationship, he could have security. Do you notice, though, that Paul did not address the issue of social justice or the morality of slavery? He didn't send a letter of chastisement to Philemon and say, how could you hold a brother in Christ as a slave? How could you do that? Was there a lesson there for us at all? Any point that we should consider at least? How about the mission of the church? Is the mission of the church to change the governments and the laws of the land or to change the hearts of the people? And if all the hearts of the people loved everyone more than self, would there be slavery? Have you ever found it, but when I was thinking along these lines, just a bizarre thought, have you ever found it bizarre that the first words of our Constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, were written by men who own slaves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they wrote these words, but they all... They, 
self-evident that all men are created equal and have the right by their creator to live. But we own slaves. Yeah. Has that ever struck you as bizarre? Shows you how powerful a culture of beliefs can be. Well, there's a lesson in that for us too. And this is a lesson I took from that. That good men can be blind to some areas in their own mind. Thus we see Nicodemus and Saul of Tarsus, who were good men, but had blind spots that needed to be removed in their understanding. And today I believe there, I want want everybody to hear this, that there are good men who are teaching the penal view of God. There are good men teaching the penal view of God. But the key will be the same key as Nicodemus and and Saul of Tarsus, a willingness to grow in our understanding and re-examine our beliefs and follow the truth where the truth leads when the evidence supports a change in our understanding. Rather than digging in and holding tooth and nail to an idea that we were raised with or that we might have preached previously. That's why it says in Thessalonians that those who are lost in the end are lost because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. They didn't have a heart that would willing to grow in truth. They rejected new truth and advancement in truth because they already had the truth. Tuesday's lesson, it asks us to read, uh, look at Corinthians, and it talks about um, how you know, uh, some say they're followers of Paulus and some say they're followers of Paul and so forth and so on. Uh, you know, one man plants, another man waters and you know, I laid a foundation, an expert builder and someone else comes and builds on that. Um, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid in Jesus Christ. You're all familiar with this. What is the principle? What's being described? What's the issue? Is there an application for us today? What is the issue being going on here? And is there an application for us today? It's God, it's not us. It's God, it's not us. What's that mean? It means it's not in any of us, except for him. Yes. We always fall into a problem if we follow men rather than God. I like this. Um, and, you know, if we can't study for ourselves and, and learn and grow in the truth for ourselves um, and focus on Christ, then we're going to fall away. And part of of what Satan does um, is he divides us. Um, You know, Jesus said a house divided against itself will fall. And so if he can get us focused on these other things, then we're divided and we are not accomplishing what God sent us to do. So do we have factions in Christianity? That's an obvious rhetorical question. Yes. Why? So let, let's, let's, let's build on what you're saying. Why do we have factions, not only within Christianity, but within denominational organizations? There are factions within the organizations. Why? Why do we have these factions? What are your theories on that? What are your thoughts? What contributes to it? If we can identify the contributing factors. Maybe we can uh, intervene with solutions to address those factors to bring reconciliation. But what do you think the contributing factors to these factions are? Somehow self has to be right, or we feel like... Our whole world is falling apart. That the things that we've always been taught and learned and, and projected ourselves, that if suddenly that changed, it makes us a bad person. Okay, so, so 
pride on the one hand uh, about self being right, but there can be another element to fear and insecurity. We have believed our whole lives that we have security doing this certain type of thing, worshiping in this certain way, practicing that certain ritual, and, and that brought us peace. And, and to have that idea challenged is, is, well, maybe I've been doing it wrong? You mean my sins haven't been covered? My sins haven't been paid for? You mean my record hasn't been cleansed? Oh, that's scary. That's frightening. I couldn't possibly think that if you're suggesting that Jesus hadn't paid the penalty and my, and my sins haven't been erased from the books in heaven, that's frightening. You're a, you're a heretic. You see how that could be an unwillingness to actually examine because we, we're afraid. We're afraid. But does the, the truth need to be afraid? Does the truth lose anything by close investigation? No, we don't lose anything. You can examine an opinion that's different than your own and, and as long as you're willing to stand by the truth, looking at the three threads of evidence, harmonizing them, it's okay. You can reject an idea that disagrees with yours. Don't be afraid. So I agree with you. So one on the one hand, maybe we've preached something our whole lives and we spent 20 years writing a systematic textbook on a certain idea and then th- that idea is challenged. We have to stand by it because our, our reputation's on the line, pride, or fear and insecurity that all these things we've done are for no purpose. There could also be the other pride. Listen, I've never, ever eaten a piece of meat in my life. <laughs> And that earns me points in heaven. How dare you take those points away from me? I got an extra star in my crown because of that. <laughs> I mean, there's this attitude too. I mean, they won't come out and say it that way, but it's, it's kind of there. You ever feel it from people? Yeah. Somehow that merits something and they're more righteous or holy because they've never stumbled in that way. Hmm. I want us to come back under one head under Jesus Christ, as the scripture says. So I'm, I'm going to suggest that one of the dividing factors that, that splits us up is we focus on doctrines separated, dissected away from the truth about God's character of love. It's not doctrines. It's doctrines dissected away from the truth about God's character of love. When we have an imposed law construct, we can have an infinite number of permutations of how arbitrary law is written and applied. Thus, theologians get subtle differences that become focal points of divergence and disagreement. Classic example, the debate I saw, and I've told you about it uh, some months back, but classic example, Catholic priest and Protestant theologian arguing over whether Christ's offering is offering his sacrifice, Catholic view, to the Father, or his merits, Protestant view to the Father, to assuage the wrath and obtain forgiveness. They're arguing doctrinally, it's sacrifice he offers. It's his merits he offers. While they're both blind to the fact that they're worshiping an arbitrary God who must be appeased and have his wrath assuaged in order to, um, to, to merit his forgiveness. They miss the whole point. Because they've dissected the doctrine away from, what would that say about the kind of character this being has that he requires something to be done, that he holds resentment and anger and wrath in his heart and something has to be done to pay him off. I mean, they, they've dissected the doctrine away. A trivial point, sacrifice versus merit, made into a huge deal. When we come back to seeing God as designer, builder, creator, his law of love, the design parameters for life, then we see that deviance, that we are deviant from his original design, he's trying to restore. So consider this medical analogy. Russell, this one's for you. We have an injury and need physical therapy. One person is doing exercises with free weights. Another is doing exercises with Nautilus equipment. Another is actually using uh, heavy objects around their home. 
and others doing push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, and heavy rubber bands. They each have different rules and how the exercises are to be done and argue that their way is orthodox and correct and that any other way is actually sinful and wrong. This is not too far from reality. <laughs> but, the person who lives, but the person who lives on the principles of natural law realizes that the specific weight one uses, lead, gold, whatever, um, isn't important as long as the application actually strengthens, heals, and restores function and doesn't add injury. Do you see the point? Now, can you apply that spiritually? I'm going to leave that idea, it's a metaphor right now, apply it to our reality. You guys apply it for me. How does that metaphor apply to reality of, of Christianity? Well, he has the 7,000 out there, so to speak. And I have been thrilled to watch how God is working in the lives of people in all churches. And that gives me courage to know that when the principle is applied, when people see him as they should, that where they sit on Saturday or Sunday morning isn't as much of an issue. He's got them on a journey. That encourages me. Okay. So the application being seeing growth in godliness... Can we be more specific? That's very general. How about some organizations, it's sinful to have a piano in your church. And others, it it's promotes the development of, of more, more music and praise to God to have a piano. And they argue. One criticizes the other because instruments are not used in the New Testament and you shouldn't bring them in the church, it's sinful. And the other argues that, hey, instruments are used in the Old Testament and, and they're able to praise God and, and rejoice. And they argue back, does it really matter whether you have a piano or not? What matters is whether you're becoming like Christ, whether your heart is growing to be gracious and kind, whether you love God and others more, whether you're self-sacrificial, whether selfishness is being destroyed. I mean, what matters is happening in the character, isn't it? But do you see how issues like this can divide? And then we have to find a group of people who keeps the rules, has the same set of rules that we want, and we'll divide and split and divide and split and divide and split based on these externals because we don't want to do anything wrong. We want to do it right. We want to keep the rules. We can't find where in the New Testament there's a rule that says we can have an instrument, so we better not. We're afraid. We're afraid we'll sin. We don't want to do that. How many of us have lived our lives in fear of sin rather than love for God? Is there a difference? Is there a difference to live in fear of sin rather than love for God and other people? And if you're living in fear of sin, how many times do we fail to love other people because we're afraid if we love that person, we'll do wrong. Can't, can't go, can't do that, it's Sabbath, can't do this. And the Pharisees in Christ's day, they couldn't, couldn't help the man on the Sabbath, you see. He was, he was beaten along the side of the road. Couldn't help him. We don't want sin. We don't want a bad count in our, in our record. Got to keep the rule. We don't want to condone their behavior either. And how many times as a church have you heard churches give seminars talking about certain other organizations that have a different ritual getting the mark of the beast because they perform that ritual instead of our ritual? It's not about the heart. It's about some external behavior. If you go to church on the right day, you're going to get the seal of God. If you go to church on the wrong day, you're going to get the mark of the beast. That's why we know those who put Christ on the cross and had him down by sunset will be sealed of God because they kept the Sabbath. <laughs> Really? I mean, think about it. It's not about the specific ritual. 
It's about the character and the heart. Okay, I know there's somebody has got to be thinking, does that mean that anything goes? Do anything you want then. All things are acceptable, but all things are not beneficial. Notice. Oh, this is beautiful. Which law model does that work on? All things are acceptable, but not all things are beneficial. So back to our metaphor of physical therapy. Back to the metaphor of physical therapy. Does anything go? Or only those things which heal, restore, and strengthen, and not the things that damage, injure, and harm? Wow. Then suddenly there's a why. Suddenly we don't have to be just structured on Nautilus equipment or free weights. We can do all kinds, as long as it heals, restores, and helps grow. But we can't do things that are damaging, injurious, and harmful. Is that true for our character development as well? Sure. Wendell. One of my favorite texts in years gone by was um, Psalms 32, 8 and 9. The Lord says, I will teach you the way you should go. I will instruct you and advise you. Don't be stupid like a horse or a mule, which must be controlled with a bit and a bridle to make it submit. Psalms 32, 8 and 9. That's beautiful, isn't it? That's beautiful. It all goes back to the rules in which you live. That's beautiful. Yes, and Paul talks about in, in Hebrews chapter 5, end of chapter 5, starting in verse 6, that the immature are not uh, acquainted with righteousness. They're not acquainted. The immature, not, they focus on the do's and the don'ts, thou shalt nots. That's the immature. They don't know what righteousness is because they're focused on the rules. Put that together with Timothy where he said the law was not given for the righteous, but for the wicked, for those who are murderers and slave traders and gossips and all these other things. That's who the law is for, not for the righteous. Why? How many of you as adults need to have a rule to brush your teeth? Do you need that rule? No, you do it. But the little kids, the immature, they need the rule. The rules were not given for the mature. It's written on the heart. I will write my law in your heart and mind. We live to love God and others. But when you have selfishness in the heart and you're only thinking about yourself, then the law comes in to diagnose and to expose. Hey, there's something wrong with your heart. You're sick. You need help. That's what Paul says. I wouldn't know what sin was if it wasn't for the diagnostic efficacy of the law. So, spiritually, will anything work, any religious practice work, as long as you're sincere? No. 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 Absolutely not. It does matter. We are free to believe anything we want, but all beliefs are not equally healthy. Some beliefs are actually damaging to the mind, darken the character, warp the person. And so my challenge for you, I'm not here to tell anyone what to believe. As I say many times, I'm here to stimulate you to think for yourself, weigh the evidences out, look through the, the, the three threads of, of scripture, science, experience that God has given us, look for the harmony, come to your own conclusions, be settled into the truth so that nothing can move you. Any closing comments or questions? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such incredible lengths to reveal the truth about your character and the life of Christ. And as we examine the way you have designed life to operate in harmony with your nature of love, of giving, of beneficence, we are one, we are awed, we, we are overwhelmed with your grace and your goodness and, and how Christ has revealed the self-sacrificial love. And, and we see that our natural hearts are so far from that, Lord. We know that we in our own willpower cannot make that tra- change and transformation. So we ask that your spirit will come into our hearts. Fill us with your love. 
Give us the knowledge of your kingdom. Help us see past the, the day-to-day routines and, and, the, and, the, and the fears and insecurities of this world to that reality where you're calling us and leading us and that we can be part of this final message to lighten the world for your return and that we can see you as the world is transformed to be ready to meet you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.